was she ashamed? Is yeah, that the right word? So. Yeah. At the, the clinic, they would tell people, it's better not to tell anybody. The secret was really recommended over there. So it would be better for the child if nobody knew that there would be another father. Wow. Yeah. So your mother took that to heart? Oh, yes. The doctor who ran the clinic had a presence and authority that impressed Marsha's mother. And she always said it was such a charming man and he was so empathic and you would really listen to him. It, it would seem like the right way to go. Don't worry, you are listening to the Fertility Podcast. That, however, was a clip from The Immaculate Deception, a podcast that both Kate and I binged and were delighted to be able to chat with its host, who you heard there, Jenny Kleeman, who you're going to hear in today's episode. Hi, I'm Natalie, a wannabe yogi and recent rock painter, and I created the Fertility Podcast as an A to Z of the issues that might affect you whilst you're trying to conceive. We've got expert interviews, as well as men and women sharing their struggles to hopefully help you feel less alone. I'm also a freedom fertility specialist, working with you to support you better, basically with your mental health, because I want you to feel more emotionally in control. And I'm Kate, and I'm an independent fertility nurse consultant and founder of my practice, Your Fertility Journey. I'm really passionate about natural fertility and particularly PCOS and I love empowering women to take ownership of their fertility journey. I'm also a veg gardening geek and embarrassingly a recent road bike convert and I think that's called my midlife crisis. What's embarrassing about it? Don't you look good in lycra? Uh, I couldn't bear the lycra shorts, I had to be lycra leggings. (laughs) And the pair of us are at some point going to do a sponsored bike ride so watch this space. So we're now going to welcome Jenny Kleeman, who is a journalist, a filmmaker, a presenter, an author to the podcast. Jenny has recently hosted a podcast called The Immaculate Deception, which Kate and I have both just binged on and we're really chuffed to talk more with Jenny. So welcome to the podcast, Jenny. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Well, just as in a nutshell, the podcast is about a Dutch fertility doctor called Jan Karbat, who had amazing results women were going to him who were desperate but it turns out that he wasn't playing by the rule book to put it uh in a very basic way and it's so fascinating I don't know how much we should give away but he was such a celebrated character wasn't he but we know his practices weren't ethical can you just set the scene of what the immaculate deception is setting out to tell us without giving too much away if possible so the immaculate deception is the story of a doctor in a particular time and place in the the 70s and 80s who was heralded as the person who could get you results where everything else failed. I interviewed people who said, you know, if all else fails, go to Carbat and you will get a baby. And he operated in a private clinic that he ran himself. And there was some very poor administration, some very poor paperwork. He didn't care very much for procedures. And the podcast goes on to investigate just what he did to get those results by interviewing a lot of the children who were conceived in his clinic. And that's part of the beauty of this story is that those children are now in their 30s. So they're not just adults, but they're fully grown adults who are really able to express themselves very well and advocate for themselves. And so the podcast is a story of how they were conceived and the bombshell when when the news came out of how they were conceived and what these people did these these children who were 
conceived in his clinic and how it affected them all differently. So it wouldn't be a spoiler to explain what he did, would it? It wouldn't, go on. If, if you explain You're a, it. Yes, I can, I, can tell you, I can tell you what he did. So it turns out that Carbat was using his own sperm to get his patients pregnant. And the podcast sets out to explore why he did that. And, you know, when I, as a journalist, first came upon the story, I was just totally shocked. He has a very distinctive look, Carbat, or he had, he's dead now. Uh, so he has kind of very smiley eyes and very prominent teeth. And these children... And square hands. Very square hands. square hands. Yes. <laughs> very particular square hands. So these children who were conceived at his clinic, there were rumours that there was malpractice at the clinic, that when mothers tried to find out more information about their donors, all the records were gone. And then as these children became adults, um, they met up with each other on Facebook, people who were conceived at the clinic, and they realised that a lot of them had the same teeth, the same eyes, the same hands, and they began to be convinced that Carbat was their father. And so Carbat was still alive at this point, and there was a, a legal claim against him to try and get him to give up his DNA. He completely denied he was the father of these people. And so for a long time, uh, this legal team representing the, the children and the mothers who had used the clinic tried to compel him to give up his DNA, and he refused. Uh, but eventually what, what swayed the judge in... in, in accepting that his DNA had to be seized was just looking at all of these children in the dock who all just had mm. had the same sort of faces. So when I first came across the story, I thought, this is an amazing, incredible story. And it's very much my kind of story, which is I like these big, amazing stories that at first look quite sensational and exceptional, but in fact can teach us all something about how we live today. But then I found out that he wasn't alone. I found case after case of other fertility doctors who've done the same thing. I think at the moment now, I have certainly found a dozen doctors who've done this. I spoke to an academic who says she thinks there are between 30 and 50 fertility doctors around the world who have used their own sperm without their patient's knowledge or consent. So this turned into a story about a phenomenon and what is it about the fertility industry that allows this to happen and is there anything that could stop it from happening again? Well, absolutely. And I think that's one thing that really struck me when I was listening to the podcast is that, you know, is this happening again uh, that we don't know about yet? And I, I suppose I, you mentioned, or somebody mentioned during the podcast where, where this has happened that they know of and mentioned US, other places. And, and you also said UK. Mm. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Do you know any more about the UK side of it? I know a little bit. I know a little bit more about the UK side of it. Clearly, if there was a fertility doctor who, who had done it in the UK, we would have gone really big on that story. There is a case, um, a quite recent case, I think, of not a doctor, but a researcher, a PhD researcher in London who was using his own sperm or providing his own sperm in a fertility clinic, uh, swapping his own sperm. I don't know the precise details of it, but I don't think it's the case that there are fertility doctors in the UK that do this. I mean, what's interesting about this is in some respects, it's the product of a particular time when male doctors were seeing female patients without a chaperone, where we gave this unquestioning deference to doctors. But then again, it's also not because there are lots of cases, for example, now of mistakes that happen in IVF and with em embryo transfer. And those mistakes only come to light when the baby is the wrong race to the expected race of the parents. Yeah. 
because you don't have a baby and then immediately demand a DNA test to check that it's the baby that you you agreed to have or consented to grow inside you. Or So there are many, many cases a year of babies that are born the wrong race and then there are investigations. So if you think about that, how well, many cases must there be mistakes if, if you know it takes for the, the baby to, to, to come out a different color to, to what you were expecting absolutely um, and i think i think that's where you know a lot of our audience may well be about to embark on donor mm. um or have their you know be using frozen sperm whatever from the husband and and have and, I, and a lot of patients said to me in the past you know i'm, I'm slightly concerned about a mix-up how likely is this to happen how do you think we could that clinics can reassure patients now that actually these practices are less likely to happen particularly surrounding young kabat and that type of situation and regain the trust that that inevitably they may have lost a little bit along the way good clinics will have great record keeping so you need to ask for an accurate paper trail as far back as possible and i think making sure that you're not just you know a lot of the mothers that i spoke to who had been treated by carbat felt very uncomfortable or felt that there was something odd in the clinic you have to trust your gut if you're getting a bad feeling walk away you have to be prepared to ask questions all the way along the line and when anybody says oh you don't need to know about that or it's better not to know about that or you shouldn't tell your children how they were conceived or any of that that's when you really need to walk away because it is the secrecy that is the problem and it's the secrecy and the lack of record keeping that allows this kind of thing to happen i mean part of what we do and why we do the podcast is to really empower people to to ask those questions and push for those questions and we know that clinics have been like oh right you know our patients are so be- much better informed now because of the growth of what we call the TTC community but because of this openness of people sharing experiences and obviously there's there's, there's more podcasts and more access to information so hopefully put people more are more likely to ask those questions but I also want to talk a bit about Carbat's motivation yes you talk about him being a libertarian and about this like innate desire to sow his seed but there was also that reference to how some of the women felt and there was that it was so uncomfortable to hear the women saying that they felt that at times there were some of the women reporting they felt that the 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 semen was warm that reference to it being this kind of perverse sexual act and he's talked about 6,000 people living in the Netherlands because of us can you talk a bit about his motivation because it is it does make your skin crawl doesn't it it does I mean that was one of the goals of the podcast was to ask why why did he do this and also he was not one rogue doctor this is a phenomenon so many doctors do this why do they do this People came up with lots of different uh, suggestions. There is this idea that he had a God complex, that he was a narcissist who just wanted to populate the world with as many copies of himself as possible. I think that might be true to an extent, but it's almost the easy answer because when you pathologize someone as a kind of bad seed, as, a, as, as somebody who's evil enough to, do, to have that kind of mindset, then you don't probe far enough to actually understand what was going on. And I think there is more going on there. One is that he did not think of his patients as fully human, as as people who were going to go on and continue with their lives and have families and have children who grew up and asked questions. He didn't think it through. He just wanted really good numbers, really good results. He wanted to uh, be the best out there. And he clearly knew that he was very fertile. 
And so he used his own sperm, I think, in order to get results, which would be a good enough explanation were it not for the fact that he retired only when he was forced to retire, which was in his late 70s, when the government shut his clinic down for such terrible record keeping. So there was something compelling him to continue working all this time when he didn't really need the money anymore. He lived in a two million euro house. So he clearly did get some kind of thrill from the power of being able to do this. And whether or not that's the power of being able to create life or just the power of being able to do this to women and to fulfill their needs. And that's a particularly kind of patronizing view of families that have fertility problems. This cliche of the mother who is desperate for a child and will do anything. This paternalistic view that you're, you know, you're just helping them by giving them a baby, that they'll want a baby by any means is despicable. But I do think that's probably a, a mindset that he had where he felt that it didn't matter because these women were desperate and it didn't matter if they, he was giving them a baby, they didn't consent to carrying. And he played on it, didn't he? He played on it so much, saying it was a secret and the shame mm. around it and their vulnerability. Yes. I mean, in some cases, he, he made women um, sign contracts promising not to talk about it. And when the children grew up and were in their teenage years, they started asking questions and the mothers, many of them rang the clinic and said, "Can I? do you think I should tell my children? And he kept saying, no, no, you mustn't. You know, your child will reject you. So there was a lot going on with him. But when you look at the wider phenomenon of fertility doctors who do this, all of them tend to be upstanding members of their community, people who are powerful. And I think part of this comes from this particularly male mindset of enjoying being powerful and not really, um, yeah, not relating to your patients as, as human beings who are going to, you know, continue living with the consequences of, of what you do. I'd be really interested to know what fertility doctors that, that hear the podcast think of yeah. it as well because I'm sure there'll be some of them that are so irate that somebody in their field has behaved you know like this I'm absolutely sure and I'm sure a lot of doctors today would say that this cannot happen anymore because uh, you know we don't run clinics like this you don't have a doctor on his own there is also the entire the sexual element of this which is that in order to produce fresh sperm you have to think about what he was doing precisely before he, he did that, which is Ugh. just completely grotesque. But nonetheless, fertility doctors have a lot of power and a lot of that power comes from the taboo around infertility. And while I think women are better now at talking about fertility problems and sh being open about them and, and sharing their experiences, I think there is a massive taboo when it comes to male infertility. I wrote a piece for, for The Guardian two or three years ago where I interviewed men who have fertility problems. It's always assumed that fertility is a female problem. There is something very emasculating about uh, being told that you have a fertility problem when you're a man. And that is the issue with all of this, with donor sperm, that there's still secrecy, I think, around. Well, women want to protect the, protect the man, don't they? And I think you yeah. mentioned in the podcast that actually that in many ways it wasn't spoken about because the, the desire for the mother to protect the father so that they weren't shamed in that way. Absolutely. And even though that this is something that's that particular story is, is a story from the 1980s, I think that still persists today that, you know, it's, it's much safer if either you don't tell anyone or if you do, you, you, you don't go into the specifics of what the problem yeah. is. Yeah. Just taking you back to when you mentioned about the administration and the government shutting the clinic down, something occurred to me that when I was listening, that did the government 
may did they had they had any inkling at that point or did they perhaps know what was going on and were they just covering up there had been a legal case against Cobat. So Cobat's clinic was shut down, I think, on the 1st of January 2009. And in 2003, 2004, a woman sued him because she had conceived a child at his clinic and had paid for the sperm of the donor to be stored so that she could then conceive a second child. She, she was a lesbian woman. And when she went back to the clinic to try and conceive her second child, she was told that they couldn't find the right sample. And in fact, her donor, I think, was Asian. So it's not something that Carvat could kind of do his usual smoke and mirrors over. Um, and so she sued him. She sued him and she won because, you know, she had paid for a service that was not provided, which was for this sperm to be stored. And it was a kind of open secret that things were a bit dodgy in his clinic. It, but it took the, the Dutch government, the Dutch authorities, a very long time to actually raid his, his clinic and try and look at the files. And there was just sort of nothing there. I think Carbat said that he had set fire to quite a lot of things before they came. But even then, it was in total disarray. So I don't know whether or not there was a kind of collusion on the part of the government. I don't think there was. I think okay. it was more incompetence rather than collusion. Hello, it's Natalie interrupting this fascinating conversation. Just to remind you that I'm now fully working as a freedom fertility specialist. What that means is I'm here to support you with your emotional well-being. If you want to understand more and you want some support, then just visit thefertilitypodcast.com and there's a page there called Let's Work Together and you can find out more. Okay, let's get back to the show. Just the the stories about how shambolic the record keeping was is just so disrespectful. It is so to the disrespectful whole as well. It, it is. It goes back to this cliche of the desperate woman who just wants to leave with mm. a baby in her tummy and doesn't care where it's from. It just shows such disdain, such disdain for patients. And sometimes people did ring up and say, you know, I'd like to know more information about my donor because back in those days um, you could donate anonymously. And sometimes they would be given paperwork saying, oh yeah, oh yeah, we found your donor's file. Your donor was this height and had blue eyes or whatever. And then this person would, would go to their mother and their mother would say, but I thought I'd agreed to have a, a donor who was another height and, and, and brown eyes. And it was just, that was just making stuff up on the form and things, just fobbing people off with that. So bad. <laughs> now you you do share in the podcast the interview that Carbat gave with um, Camille. Uh, Camille 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 yes. Camille Ballard. and yeah. near the end of his near the end of his his life it was like the last interview wasn't yes. it that he he gave and he did seem quite happy to talk and so we we were wondering whether you know you got the sense that he he was wanting to confess or to be found out or he just just didn't care anymore no i think he wanted to talk because he had a very big ego and camille really flattered him i think camille had tried okay. four times to go and interview him and camille is polish yeah. So he didn't want to talk to the Dutch press, but when Camille said, I've traveled all the way from Poland to talk to you, you're this pioneer of reproductive medicine, he was excited to do so. But he said quite a few things that didn't, didn't make sense and he refused to accept any responsibility for what had happened in the clinic. At the time of that interview, nothing was proven about him using his own sperm, but there had been lots of rumors. But there were rumors about other things, like he allowed a completely inappropriate donor to donate hundreds and hundreds of times and this person has about 200 children now this this man who probably shouldn't have been allowed to donate at all mm. um yeah i mean he was very triumphant in the interview he was very proud of, of what he'd achieved because he looked at everything in terms of brute numbers i've made six thousand yeah. people 
I'm a, I'm a hero without looking at the content of those people's lives or the right they have to know about their identity. And then also there's the whole issue of the mothers, which was really interesting for me when I started doing the podcast. I thought it would be easy to find a mother who would be prepared to talk to me. If Carbat has had 60 odd children, you'd expect at least one of their mothers would be prepared to talk. But the sense of shame that these women felt that they'd been duped in this way and also the secret that many of them were still carrying about how their children were conceived meant that it was really hard to find a mother who was prepared to talk. And whereas in America, where there have been cases, the mothers are portrayed as the victims, as victims of assaults because they were subject to a procedure that they didn't consent to, or that they consented to the procedure, but not the content of the procedure. That's what makes this so legally interesting. In the Netherlands, it's always been portrayed as a children's rights issue, that these children were denied the right to know who their father was because of the underhand way in, the, in which they've been conceived. So the children get all of the sympathy in the Netherlands, and the mothers are just not really spoken about which as a mother myself kind of broke my heart because I can't imagine what mm. it must be like to, to learn that the baby yeah. that carried inside me isn't the one I thought it was. Lydia broke, it was Lydia, yes. isn't it? Yes. She broke my heart. And, and I could tell heart. that you were quite emotional when you left her. Um, yes. she beautiful so lady. Lovely. Yes, mm. she was so mm. lovely. And at the end of the interview, she cupped my face <laughs> and said, thank you. She's a very kind of warm, very physical person and hiding behind her jolliness in so many respects. She was prepared to talk to me, mainly I think because she's in quite a unique situation, which is that the husband who was the legal father of her children had died and she was remarried to a very supportive and long suffering second husband who was dealing with the, the trauma of, of all that she had been through. She found out only about a year ago that Carbat was actually the father of one of her sons. And so she was in a position to talk about it because there was no shame in it for her because her husband had passed away and she had the support of her second husband. Mm. But yeah, it was very yeah. emotional interviewing her. Yeah, lovely lady. We, we have conversations often in the podcast of people talking about their experiences and, and what they've overcome in terms of infertility. And, and there's such a kind of element of relief, especially if they've not spoken about it before. I'm sure, did you get that sense from some of these conversations? Because you were like, in, you were enabling people to talk about it, weren't you, in a safe in yes. a safe way? She definitely seemed very relieved that she got to talk about it. And also that she was being allowed to talk about how she was a victim in all of this. And for me as an interviewer, that was difficult in a way, because I didn't want to re-traumatise her by getting her to talk about some terrible things that had happened to her. But equally, she, she said she really wanted people to know because there isn't the voice of the mothers out there and she feels so strongly that it's a voice that really needs to be heard. So I was so grateful to her for her honesty and how open she was mm. and all that she was prepared to tell me. I mean, we couldn't have made the podcast without no, her. No, she was just, she was lovely. If you think back to the children, and I loved, loved listening to Marsha and Inga who were so yes. uh, laughing and so incredibly positive that they had found each other through both being half siblings. You could see that actually had enriched their life. And then in complete and utter contrast, you had Joey, who was obviously massively suffering. And I loved it when he said that he wished that he could, he, he hasn't got the time to get to know all of his siblings, but he, yeah. and he felt really bad about that because he wanted to, to, to get you know to get to know them and, and be a half brother but obviously clearly that's not going to be possible if you're 75 or whatever mm. and it kind of really got us thinking I guess about 
one thing that they did say, all of them said, even though their experiences of it may be completely different, is that they all wished that they'd been told that they were donor conceived a long time ago. What, what yeah. do you think we can learn from that, as, as, and particularly for parents who have donor children who are considering whether or not to divulge this information? Having spoken to so many people who had such different responses to the circumstances of their conception, who had grown into such different people, and I didn't just talk to children of Carl Bat, I spoke to children who had been conceived in his clinic in, in dubious ways. The one thing they all shared was they wish they had been told sooner. And I know this is something that, for example, lesbian couples, gay couples, they have to tell their children how they were conceived. You know, you have to be honest from, from early on because the questions will, will come up. And I know from speaking to them, they've always said that's such a gift in a way that they have to kind of get it out there early on. So that is one thing I learned, certainly from speaking to all of these people in their 30s, that they all wish that they had known sooner. And it would not, they say, it would not have damaged the enormous love they have for their, their legal parents. And, you know, it wouldn't have taken anything away from that relationship. That the earlier you become used to, to that, the easier it is to understand. Because also so many of these children had huge questions about, you know, why am I different from, from my siblings? Why don't I look like my dad? Uh, why do I have a completely different sense of humor? And for Joey, the reason why so much of his life, I mean, he, he grew up in very difficult circumstances, but the reason why he had such um, trauma was because so, so little made sense. And he felt that he was kind of being gaslit because all around him, he saw differences. So yes, that's one, one huge takeaway is to be straight up with your kids about where they come from. It's definitely, it's definitely a conversation that is, is so prominent in the donor conception kind of community, especially that we see on Instagram and in some of the conversations that we've had on the podcast that has been, you know, the, the, the outright kind of advice is, and, and then guidance on how to have the conversations. And I know that there's all sorts of books yes. and lovely ways now to kind of share that story and explain the story. And I think we as parents worry so much more when children are so accepting and able to adapt yeah. and understand this stuff. And I think the damage to a relationship between a parent and child from from the people that I spoke to I spoke to quite a few donor conceived children the damage came from finding out about the secrecy rather than finding out that your biological parent was was someone different but the hurt comes from feeling like you've been you've been lied to uh, rather than feeling that your biological parents are different from your legal parents and were you able to to gauge from the conversations or did people openly uh, talk about what support they'd had in terms of therapy and counseling and uh, having you know discovered what they had most of them had had no therapy whatsoever some of them didn't feel entitled to it they felt like you know i'm alive what do i have to complain about joey has clearly had a lot of therapy joey's mother has had a lot of therapy joey's mother thought that she was conceiving with the sperm of her husband, which she had brought to the clinic. So it was particularly hurtful to her because she didn't even think she was using donor sperm. And I know that she's still in therapy now, but it's difficult. I mean, it's particularly difficult for the mothers as well, who, you know, do you want to say that you're, you wish you hadn't had the child that you've had and that you've raised? No, so it's, it's a lot to admit. Uh, it's a lot to admit you need help processing, if you see what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. At the end of the podcast, you talk about the civil case that is uh, against Carbat's estate. Yeah. 
have you had an update on that how far that has all got at all i think it's still ongoing at the moment there hasn't been a ruling and i have no idea how it will go i think there are a lot of plaintiffs in the case and some of them have a really good case that they need to be compensated uh others less so but this isn't the united states and you know they're likely to only get a few thousand euros at best as a kind of gesture but that's this is not, the other thing that's not what they want is it they, they they're no. saying that they want the apology more than anything that was the most important they, thing they want carbat's wife to say they want to be seen they, these are people who yeah people who have spent their lives feeling different from their families and being told to just be quiet and and you know what are you what are you imagining you know what are you thinking about you're wrong they want the validation of being ruled to have been wronged and money isn't the point. If they had Rita Carbat, who's Carbat's uh, third wife, who's, who's still alive, she still refuses, even in the face of all of this DNA evidence, she refuses to acknowledge that he did what he did. I think if she just said sorry to these people and said, I'm sorry that you've had to deal with this, uh, we as a family are sorry, I think that would go a long way in making these people feel a lot better. And perhaps she could have avoided this, this final legal battle if she had done that earlier such a simple thing for her to do but again I, yeah she's still protecting him now she's still protecting him now but again i think this comes down to a general attitude of not seeing the patients as fully human or the children as anything of their concern you have to really have disdain for people to think that this is this is the right way to behave we've talked um on the podcast in the past about unregulated sperm donation and i'm wondering whether you've got kind of more of a burning desire to take this story further we did a bizarre interview with an australian guy and there was a woman who'd flown over from sweden she was in an airbnb and they were talking to me and he was doing it off his own back they'd made they'd met each other on facebook and i was flabbergasted he contacted me and said i want to talk to you about you know what i'm doing and i'd previously done an episode with a, a fertility doctor who had done a, a, a tv kind of piece about unregulated sperm donation i wonder if you if you're going to continue to try and uncover more i would love to continue and, and and try and uncover more i mean always in this field there are such fascinating stories and amazing human stories i mean i learned some very interesting things along the way of doing this like for example the success rate with fresh sperm versus the success rate with frozen sperm. I didn't know about that. You know, a lot of the private clinics in the UK, at least, don't really talk about that, you know. And so certainly that that kind of netherworld of unregulated donation is is completely fascinating. And I would love to look into that. But I'm going to have to check out that episode with the Australian. <laughs> I'll send, I'll send you a link. Yeah, I will do. Well, Jenny, thank you. It's been really lovely talking to you. And we'll put all links to the podcast, which Kate and I, like I say, totally binged. And I know it'll be really interesting to the whole kind of TTC community as well as the donor community. But we haven't done this to terrify anybody, just to no. kind of put I mean, that in, out in many there. ways, it's a cautionary tale. It's something that happened a while ago that can pull out different things that we can learn from it about honesty and about asking questions that can be useful today or at least that's what I, I hope we can all take from the podcast absolutely 100 percent. and thank before you, we let you go because you. you've got a so new much. show on times radio and you've also got a book about i'm not sure when we'll be sharing this i think your yes. book might already have come out but do you want to just mention your book my book is called sex robots and vegan meat adventures at the frontier of birth food sex and death <laughs> and in fact the birth section oh i'm so good the birth watch, section is uh, is about artificial wounds artificial wombs that are being developed to incubate very premature babies, not to incubate them, to gestate them. And they're doing, they've already done this successfully with lamb fetuses. 
what would the world be like if we could have babies without anyone being pregnant? How is that going to affect the future of fertility, the future of motherhood, the future of women? It was, it's the best fun I've ever had. Uh, Mind blowing. Wow. Sounds yeah. brilliant. <laughs> thank you. Oh, thank good you. luck with it all. And thank you for chatting. And um, yeah, we look forward to, uh, to reading and seeing more of you. It's been a total pleasure. Thanks Definitely. for having me. Thanks, Jenny. So to find out more, you can follow us on our socials. I'm at Fertility Poddy. And I'm at Your Fertility Journey. And we'd love it if you could rate and review this podcast because it's amazing to know what you think. It's also helpful for other people to know that this is worth listening to. 